No, that's where I said to him, you know, how, what are we going to do about the economics discipline? And he said, well, it's dead. There's nothing we can do. Um, and so, well, what can we do? Well, we focus on policymakers and, and with, with the help yeah, of, of, uh, of lay people, we're actually making some progress. Uh, and so, so they were unknowingly influencing what is now MNT. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, it's a good time to be. Uh, I feel bad for my, you know, for my teachers, who many of whom have passed on now, to miss out on this period of history right here, where we've got a chance. I don't want to get too excited because everything is falling apart all over the planet. <laughs> but uh, we've got a chance to maybe, maybe the very fact that it is falling apart is leading so many of these progressives who are looking for solutions, and we're not getting the solutions from the neoclassicals. The neoclassicals, well, we can't afford it. Uh, and, you know, we can't afford not to. So this is a really exciting time to be, I think, a uh, post-Keynes institutionalist economist uh, because the MMT stuff is really just taken off. Welcome to Activist MMT, a podcast about nonviolent MMT direct activism, introducing modern monetary theory to the world and conversations about learning MMT together. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today I talk with Texas Christian University economics professor, author, and cowboy economist, John Harvey. In this first of a three-part episode, John talks about how he decided on economics as a profession, despite mainstream thought doing its best to discourage him. He then elaborates on the concept of institutionalism, which he recently discussed on MMT podcast, and specifically how MMT integrates its ideas. This part one with John is the first inspired by Fred Lee's 2006 book, The History of Heterodox Economics. As the book makes clear, heterodox economics, which includes MMTers, institutionalists, Marxists, and all post-Keynesians, is resisted by mainstream economists with every fiber of their being and the nearly infinite power that backs them. John talks about how John Galbraith told him, importantly, over drinks, that mainstream economics is dead and hopeless. So instead of changing the minds of people whose paychecks depend on their minds not changing, the decision was made to communicate directly with candidates, policymakers, and importantly, lay people via interviews, blogs, and social media. In parts two and three, John and I discuss inflation as seen through the lenses of both mainstream and post-Keynesian economics. And of course, we touch on the MMT design job guarantee, which directly addresses much of it. You can contact me on Twitter or Facebook, and you can email me at activistmmt at gmail.com. 
If you're enjoying Activist MMT even a fraction as much as I enjoy creating it, and if you're safe and secure and happen to be lucky enough to have some public deficit kicking around in your pocket, I hope you might consider becoming a monthly patron of Activist MMT. For as little as a dollar a month, you'll get exclusive content and updates, several days of early access to every episode, and for some, super early access, weeks and sometimes even months in advance. You can start by going to patreon.com slash activist MMT. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Whatever you can afford, I would be very grateful. Thank you. Now, on to our conversation. You said you were doing lectures because of coronavirus, and you're even going to be doing it when you, you know, go back even in person right. because of like, someone's in Vietnam. Yeah. But I'm I'm curious, like your lectures are obviously just pre-recorded. So do you have like what interaction do you have with your students right now? Well, uh, in this econometric, it, the class is econometrics, which is a class everyone is terrified of because it's applied <laughs> regression analysis. Which honestly, there's not really that much math, not 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 any calculating of things. But it's interpreting data, and, and it, it takes a while to get used to it, and some some never do. But okay. so I knew it was a class they'd be terrified of. Uh, back in May, I we cover like twelve chapters of the book. I made videos for every single chapter, so I basically lectured over the entire course, and then I made a video for every uh, homework set uh, at the end of each chapter, and then uh, and I got all that done back in May. Then once we actually started the class on whatever the first you know Monday of July was, uh, we still met and we still been meeting every morning. I didn't know. I was really curious as to how this would work. We've been meeting every morning. Uh, granted, we're supposed to meet at eight, and we've all happily decided let's make that eight thirty instead. Uh, but mm-hmm. um, we almost everyone's come to class. Yeah, I've been shocked that almost everyone's come in because really this is to answer questions you may have, and then I'll, I'll right. go over the things that I thought might have been the most challenging. Um, so, so far, I've really been pleased, but it took so much effort on the front end to get all so that so that I don't worry in the Zoom. I don't worry in the Zoom. Oh, my gosh, I didn't cover everything because I know I've got that covered in the in the YouTube videos. I know they've got somewhere to go for that. So, so you just you have decided that you're going to do a straight lecture with no input at all. And you're going to then you're going to have this just pure interaction with your students. Like what I was wondering is, do you have any like lectures where people are watching live and you see questions come in? Like maybe at the end, you'll, you'll, you'll tailor a little bit based on those questions. Yeah. I I do that a little bit in the morning. That's what I do when, you know, because our class is scheduled from eight to nine 50 to nine 50. So we've been doing, as I say, eight 30 to nine 50, because we don't really need that much time. And, And that's the time when I'm watching the chat window and so forth. Now, everyone's got their camera turned off, by the way. Um, and uh, that makes it a little disconcerting because as a matter <laughs> of fact, yesterday morning, one of my students, Meredith, scared the hell out of me when she spoke. Um, she had a question. <laughs> to, and I'd been sitting there talking away and all of a sudden somebody was talking. I was like, well, of course they're talking, you idiot. She, she, <laughs> she had unmuted herself and was asking a question. <laughs> but that's what they've been doing. Um, and, you know, I'll wait to see if there's any questions. So so they've got the videos, and I want them to watch those first. Uh, and then I'll like, go, okay, I'm going to go over the high points now uh, and make sure that the things that I know – I've been teaching this class since 1988. So I have some hmm. sense of, of what's the most difficult to get a hold of. Uh, so, yeah, that, so, yeah, there has been live uh, lecture uh, every morning. But it's really a repeat of what I've already done on the videos. 
but actually that's working out really well. I've been surprised. And, and, and is this all new because of coronavirus or did you do any kind of this stuff even before? I have never done anything like this before in my life. Um, wow. Yeah. At the very, now here's the, but you, see, you know what though? The cowboy economist thing was really helpful. My, my YouTube channel with the cowboy economist, I already had all the equipment I needed. I already had mm-hmm. a studio set up. So uh, while other faculty were sort of scrambling to figure out what they were going to do at the end of spring semester, I jumped right into it uh, and started making videos right away. So this is just an this is just a planned extension of that. The thing I didn't do well at the end of the spring semester, and, and nobody did because we hadn't prepared for it, was that my assignments were not well suited to being take home assignments. They were really mm. better suited to being in class. So you know this class doesn't make that mistake because we planned ahead. But uh, no, it's actually other than the tremendous amount of time, um, it's actually worked out okay. And, and I will tell you this too: um, we're not crazy about all the decisions that my university has made. But I'm sure, a, I'm sure that's true everywhere. And B, they required every one of us to take an extensive course in how to teach online during the summer, uh, so that once fall came around, we're not winging it like we did at the end of spring. And given how much money people pay to go to a private university, I think that was a very good thing to do. Hmm. So the uh, one thing I wanted to say on the recording was, I in in a way, I'm a little bit happy that there's coronavirus and you can't go to school <laughs> because I get to watch your lectures for free right, online. I've, right. watched, I've watched some of your lectures, so it's great. Uh, um, okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. Now, I was going to say, I don't know that the university, the university kind of discourages from putting it on YouTube, but my attitude mm. has been, of course, here I'm broadcasting it, don't ask, don't tell. Uh, my I will feeling, cut that. Didn't You never <laughs> said that. <laughs> well, I, you know, I honestly figured they're like, here's our rules, but hey, if you're doing a good job and nobody complains, I don't care how you did it. Uh, <laughs> There's a moment where you show, where you show someone's like assignment and you're like, uh, yeah, I think you like accidentally show their name or something. You're right. like, I, I know I'm violating privacy rules here right now, but right, hopefully I right. won't be fired or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Uh, well, I'm looking back at our email exchange now. Um, you know, what, what sort of uh, discrimination I may have received. As yeah, being, so, yeah. yeah. So I don't want to dwell on it, but I do, I do want, you're the first person that I'm, economists that I'm talking about this with. Yeah. So what I, I, I don't want to like dwell on it, but I do want to get a sense of like, we really are up against a monster here. Yeah. And yeah, you know, yeah. just the taste of it and, and oh, to yeah. I've got a put it in a bigger. <laughs> yeah. So, so pick, pick a couple of, of, of the best stories and, right. and then like, you know, put it in the larger context because I was inspired. I don't know if I said this, I was inspired by Fred Lee's book, oh, the history of heterodox economics. He was a nice man. Um, I, I oh yeah I mean I I knew him uh, fairly well uh, mm-hmm. and um, yeah and of course he died of of, of lung cancer you know a few years mm-hmm. ago now but uh, and he was a dynamo and he knew mm-hmm. no fear he was one of those really special people that was a a tremendous driving force behind an organization and, and it was really a mm-hmm. huge loss. Wow, uh, well I read the first half of his uh, history of heterodox economics and it. It really changed me. It really changed yeah. me. It's just it shows me that, you know, we have all these amazing podcasts that do, you know, that dive into the intellectual academic concepts, and that's important and that's yeah. great. I think it's also I want to cover the non academic concepts a little bit to provide context for yeah. those academic concepts. Because no, that according, makes sense. what Fred Lee's books is like 
they're actually even more important than the academic concepts. Yeah. It's providing that context, the community history. So and it certainly ends up creating a, a, a deeper and more, I guess, powerful story for somebody who's listening than drawing a bunch of equations on the board or, or, or whatever, because there's a hell of a lot more to the backstory. Uh, and the backstory is what makes the the, the, the details stick with you, I think. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah, no, I think that's a great idea. Okay. So, so if you would, if you could, you know, introduce yourself. I mean, people generally know you, but introduce yourself. Right. And then if you could give us some, you know, unique story, whatever, whatever you think. So, yeah, please. yeah. No, I'll, I'll talk about how I got into economics. Um, okay. And, and yeah, right. that, that leads from there. So, so you say when? We have been recording. Let's do it. All right. All right. So, so I am uh, John Harvey. I've been a professor of economics at Texas Christian University since 1987, um, which is really mm-hmm. hard for me to believe. I uh, have been, I have taught my former students' children now. Uh, mm-hmm. And again, I guess this happens to everybody as they get older. It's hard to imagine that you're really older, but I am. So I've been around and, and, and seen a lot of these um, you know, events in the economics discipline that we're all talking about today. And I cannot tell you how unique and special this is right now. But let me back up and tell you how I got into economics in the first place and uh, how I did not get into mainstream neoclassical economics. My, um, I'm going to go all the way back to the fourth grade. In the fourth grade, I decided I wanted to be a scientist. Uh, and this is, it stuck with me from then on. Uh, and all kinds of science fiction movies and stuff. And to me, the hero was always the scientist who figured mm-hmm. out, you know, wait, these aliens are actually being driven by so-and-so. And if we do so-and-so. So when I you know, got done with high school and started college, I was a physics major. And I can remember on the SAT, there was a part of the SAT that said, what are you going to major in? And I bubbled in physics. Um, to what level will you pursue this? And I bubbled in PhD. And it said, how sure are you of this decision? You know, a scale of one to 10, and I bubbled in 10. Mm-hmm. And then a, one quarter into my college education, I didn't like physics anymore. Uh, hmm. I, I thought it was god-awful boring. Um, I didn't have a problem with the math, uh, you know, taking calculus, and, and, I, and, you know. But the subject matter just wasn't what I was into. And this was a real crisis for me because, as I said, since fourth grade, I had known that I wanted to be a scientist. And, and I thought that that meant, you know, physics. And so I tried to think, well, what is it that I enjoy? And I love military history. I love international relations. And I thought I should be a political science major. What the hell am I doing over here? So then I switched over to political science and, and, and you know, I, I wasn't interested in the constitutional law kind of stuff. I wanted to do the international relations aspects of it. But then I thought, well, but really, the economics seems to be a major factor in, you know, international relations. I really probably should be double majoring in economics and political science. And, and that's exactly what I did. Uh, I double majored as an undergrad uh, at the University of Tennessee, where I went just because my dad happened to get transferred to Knoxville when I was uh, a sophomore in high school. And so when I graduated from high school, there I was. Uh, so I did this uh, political science economics, double major undergrad. And I got to tell you what really grabbed me. So, so why did I then go to economics and not political science at that point? What really grabbed me was the history of economic thought class. I can remember reading stuff by Adam Smith and David Ricardo thinking, oh my God, this is what I've been looking for. Uh, this is what I've been wanting to study, you know, since the fourth grade, apparently. Uh, and so that really pulled me in. Something I didn't know that was going on behind the scenes was this. Our faculty at the University of Tennessee had a bunch of institutionalist economists. And institutionalists are basically followers of Thorsten Veblen, 
uh, you know, as with any school of thought, it's more complicated than that. But that, that's where it started. And the idea that, that, that cultural and social factors are extremely important in determining economic behavior, as well as things like religion and politics and so forth, which is something, of course, the mainstream rejects uh, that, you know, well, economics is, uh, you know, I describe it this way to students. The mainstream sees economics like human physiology. If we were aliens coming down here to kidnap humans and dissect them to see how they worked, we could dissect three or four humans and we're done. They all work the same way. We all digest food the same way. We all, you know, procreate the same way. If we're, if we're kidnapping more humans and dissecting them, we're just doing it for fun because we've learned everything we needed to learn because human physiology is the same across time and across space. But if we were kidnapping humans and trying to learn their languages, oh my God, now we've got to kidnap somebody from West Virginia. Now we're going to mm. kidnap somebody from Spain, you know. Uh, <laughs> and so the institutionalists view economics as more like language. Uh, are there similarities? Of course there are. And there may even be some universals. But we can't assume these things. We must discover these things. Uh, so that's the way they and, and I was being taught by these people, not realizing this wasn't the mainstream, not realizing this wasn't how everybody did this. Now, this was particularly in my economic history, which is, you know, his, economic history of Europe, economic history of the U.S. and history of economics classes. Uh, but uh, I didn't know that wasn't how everybody did. It. So I, I loved it. And then I decided, well, I want to get a Ph.D. in this. And uh, so, so I, and I stayed at University of Tennessee because the uh, girl who's downstairs right now in uh, just, just still continuing our weekly happy hour with our friends. Uh, but um, yeah. So anyway, the reason I stayed at Tennessee was because I met this girl at a party in my senior year. Uh, and we are going to have our 35th wedding anniversary uh, in you know, beginning of, of August. And she still mm. had two more years to go. So that was my only decision-making process for going to University of Tennessee for a PhD program. Um, what I found out when I started the program was now I'm taking hardcore neoclassical classes. Uh, and the institutionalists are teaching the economic history and history of economics, but they're not teaching the core micro and macro theory. And my God, I was disappointed. Uh, I really expected a PhD in economics to be Okay, back when you were an undergrad, we assumed all kinds of unrealistic stuff because we knew you couldn't take it yet. But now we're going to remove all those unrealistic assumptions and come up with more complicated models that are more reflective of the way the real world works. We did the opposite. We actually became it, honestly less realistic than we had undergrad. Uh, and I really thought about quitting the program. I thought, well, this is not for me. And, and I was really, I had no idea what I was going to do instead. Uh, How many years then, have you been at this point? Uh, let's see. It might have been in the first year, end of mm. the first year. Uh, and then uh, I don't like to say the hand of God intervened It all. It actually turned out to be the hand of Paul Kubik, um, the invisible hand. Yes, yeah, exactly. The invisible hand of Paul Kubik had accidentally left a book on my desk in my graduate student office. And it was called A Guide to Post Keynesian Economics, mm. uh, edited by Alfred Eichner, a wonderful man who passed away in 1988. Um, very much like Fred Lee, an organizer, powerful, fearless, uh, somebody that we really could have benefited from, but he, he passed away at a very young age. But anyway, so there's this book by Alfred Eichner, and I start reading it. It's like, oh, my God, this is what I want to do. It was all about we can have very precise uh, models about the real world to come up with very definitive conclusions that are wrong, or we can have models that are more realistic and more difficult to work with, but they actually say something that's useful. Uh, and I said, well, that's what I want to do. And so I start reading on the side 
all this post-Keynesian stuff by Paul Davidson and uh, Basil Moore uh, and so forth, uh, not by Randy Ray, because he and I are getting our PhDs about the same time, hmm. but by Hyman Minsky. Uh, and um, then I decided, you know, I'll put up with your crap until I'm done with my dissertation, and then I'm going to do what I want to do. Not realizing, of course, that it isn't that simple, but in my mind it was. I, I knew what I wanted to do. So I stuck with that. And then I very luckily uh, got a job at a university where my, you know, school of thought wasn't a problem. In fact, what happened was I hadn't even, this is one of those terrible stories of it's not what you know, it's who you know. And that's, of course, a major problem with our culture. Um, but what happened, well, I guess maybe with everybody's culture, but what happened was I hadn't applied to TCU, uh, Texas Christian University, because they, were, they, they asked for a writing sample. It's like, I don't want to put together a writing sample. Nobody else wanted one. My department chair at Tennessee said, have you applied to TCU? I said, no. I said, well, then you should. Because his office mate in grad school at University of Texas, which was a hotbed of institutionalism, was the department chair at TCU. So I applied for that job and uh, ended up getting it. And at TCU, it was no problem that you were doing research in post-Keynesian economics. Uh, it was no problem that you were doing research in institutionalist economics. That was rewarded as much as anything else because the department was dominated by institutionalists at that point. Um, it's not as clear and easy now, but then of course I've been there for 30 some years, so I don't have to worry anymore. Uh, but uh, back then it wasn't a problem. And I didn't realize that it wasn't like that everywhere. And I'll tell you this, TCU has no PhD program. So if you're specializing, oh. yeah, in, in you know, uh, uh, institutionalist or anything non-mainstream, good luck getting somewhere that isn't a small liberal arts college or, you know, mine's not a small liberal arts college, but we have no PhD program. So we get no chance to recreate, uh, to, to train people in the stuff we've learned. So that's how I ended up where I am. And I spent my first several years learning institutionalism. Uh, Post-Keynesian stuff wasn't that hard to learn relative to the mainstream. Because after all, Keynes had been a mainstream economist and he breaks free. Veblen, my God, it's hard to read. Uh, and so it took me several years to figure out institutionalism. Uh, and Style or content? Content and, 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 and worldview and paradigm. Um, to, to get your head wrapped around the idea that capitalism isn't natural when you've been raised in such a culture. I mean, this is true of any anthropological concept. Uh, you know, you, you've been raised a Catholic. And so to you, everything that Catholics do is sort of natural. And anything that somebody else does is sort of foreign and weird. And it's the same thing with other uh, aspects of our, of our culture. So having to convince yourself that actually this is just kind of a weird part of our culture that we reward owners of capital with something we call profit, and there's nothing natural about it. It might be very useful, and it might not be useful, but it's not natural. So there's a lot more to it than that, of course, but, but it, that took much longer to figure out than the post-Keynesian stuff. And uh, let me give you one illustration of my frustration with the neoclassical stuff. Uh, I specialized in grad school in international economics. And after my international trade theory course, where it was all neoclassical, where I made the highest grade in the class uh, <laughs> and, you know, up against, uh, they were nice guys, but they, but they were known as these hot shots that were the finance major, uh, finance PhD guys, but I beat them too. Um, and I was standing in line at the grocery store afterwards and I thought to myself, my God, if other people in line knew that I just finished a PhD level course in international trade, I wouldn't be able to answer a single question they would logically have. Who are our trading partners? I, I don't know. What do we export? X and Y? Because that's what we used in the, you know, equation. 
Uh, and, and nothing, none of that was important to the class. I inverted matrices. I solved, you know, equations. And, and apparently to the satisfaction of the instructor who gave me the highest grade in the class, as I said. Um, but I knew nothing about the real world. And that bothered me so much. And you can have a very successful career as a neoclassical economist just playing with math. So that's, that's my story. That's how I got to where I am right now. And then for my first 20 or 25 years of my uh, professional career, I pretty much focused on exchange rates, which, which culminated with a book on exchange rates that I published. I can't even remember when now, 2005. I don't know. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I, the financial crisis had already happened. So it, maybe it was 2010, something like that. And then after that, what I really always loved was macro uh, and particularly business cycles. And so I, I've, I've been getting into that since then. And, and one side thing that I've gotten into was our department started offering a class, a long story, I won't go into that, but, but, but not only offering, but requiring a course of our majors that covers different schools of thought and economics. Now, this is extremely unique in our discipline uh, to even offer such a course, let alone to require it, but there mm -hmm. was no book. So I went to, ah. yeah, I went to Edward Elgar, which is the, you know, a publisher of, of non-mainstream stuff. And Edward Elgar was still active. The, the Edward Elgar, uh, not actually, there's also an Edward Elgar of British music uh, history fame. Uh, not that guy. That guy's been dead for years, but a different guy. <laughs> and, and I went down there to ask Elgar. And I said, you, I, I'm using a book of yours that's 20 years old. Do you have a newer one? And I swear to you, I don't know how this happened. But I walked away having agreed to write such a book. Um, mm. It's a good thing he wasn't like, you know, selling me a bridge or something like that, because I don't know how that. It was one of the most painful things I've ever done, uh, writing a chapter on Austrian economics. And one of the things I insisted on with the book was it's not going to be propaganda. I'm going to explain Austrianism as if I think it's really true. And when I'm done, I'm going to send this chapter to a couple of Austrians and ask them if it's okay. So mm -hmm. that was exhausting. Uh, but and I, I, I second edition is actually just coming out, I believe, next month, where I added a chapter on uh, sustainability, ecological economics, which mm. is horrifically depressing. Uh, but I, actually, you know, ironically, the thing I really didn't want to do is probably the most unique contribution I've ever made to the discipline. And that is this this book of different schools of thought that has been vetted by members of those schools of thought. Uh, and I, I, I still don't want to do it, <laughs> but I never wanted to do well, that. I'm going to do your interview about your interview about that book was was really enjoyable with uh, with Christian and Patricia. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so last question about just you know introduction or whatever is, can you just fit uh, how institutionalism relates or MMT is based or I know MMT is sort of an ambiguous term like yeah. post Keynesian. How institutionalism relates to MMT? Yeah, no, uh, let me let me tell you this story that may be uh, telling. Uh, when I was on Facebook and, and you know, a lot of the conversations, of course, on take place on Facebook, with MMT, somebody at some point asked me how long have, it may have been uh, Charles, uh, how long have you been into MMT? And I said, what's, what's MMT stand for? I, I didn't know what it was. I thought that was just the way you were supposed to do macroeconomics if you were a post-Keynesian or an institutionalist. I didn't know there was a special name for it. I, hmm. you know, I, I just thought, well, yeah, of course the government, um, you know, can, can spend what it wants and so forth because it issues the currency. Uh, so I didn't even realize that, uh, you know, that there was a distinction being made. Uh, having said that, there are some institutionalists and post-Keynesians who disagree with some of the tenets of it. Uh, but honestly, 
you know, disagree with some of the tenets of it. Well, heck, you know, within a school of thought, you're going to get disagreements. But 90% of, of, of what, there's a reason why the people in the economics discipline that embraced MMT were coming out of schools that were teaching post-Keynesian institutionalist economics. And I think that's the easiest way to put what is the connection. The connection is that even if there were some new and different ideas in MMT, those new and different ideas didn't appeal to Austrians. You know, they didn't appeal to neoclassicals. They appealed to post-Keynesians and institutionalists who were very much concerned that we're actually talking about the real world, that real world uh, causal links are, you know, uh, terribly important to discuss. Like when um, uh, Scott Fulweiler does all this research on exactly how does the treasury carry out a bond sale. He, he's looked through their actual uh, operating manual. I, I'll bet most neoclassicals don't even know there is a mon- operating manual. Uh, but he's looked through. He's wondering, how do they actually do it? All right. It's one thing to, you know, uh, make up an analogy. But to actually go in, and, and I'll tell you a, a, a methodological difference between uh, institutionalism and post-Keynesianism versus the neoclassical view. And think of it this way. You know, every argument is a series of premises that leads to a conclusion. And it can be very simple, like, uh, you know, everybody named Jeff owns a hamster. Uh, Jeff Epstein uh, is named Jeff, right? So therefore, Jeff owns a hamster. So that's an argument, All right, We've got two premises there and a conclusion. The question is, where did you get your premises? Did you get them? And obviously, there's a, there's a range here. But did you get them from observation of the real world and say, you know, I did, a, I did some research, and it turns out that everybody named Jeff has a hamster? Or... <laughs> Did you sort of sit there and think about it and intuitively decide, you know what? I think if my name was Jeff, I'd own a hamster. Uh, <laughs> what would I do it, if I was a man named Jeff? Yes. Yeah. Oh, and that's exactly it because there's a fantastic quote from, uh, oh, good Lord, I can't think of his name, but, but actually a guy in the mainstream years ago where he said, if someone asked neoclassical economists uh, to explain the behavior of horses, they wouldn't go out and look at horses. They would sit in their offices and ask themselves, what would I do if I was a horse? And <laughs> it's a methodological disagreement about what is reliable. What, it, what, what, what do we respect as evidence? Institutionalists and post-Keynesians do not respect that as evidence. All right. You have to be able to show me that's the way they do it in the real world. Uh, and so that is, I think, one of the huge reasons why uh, they were very open to the MMT idea uh, and others were not. Well, that answers my question. I, I didn't. Now it's clear because uh, right at the beginning of the macroeconomics textbook is that whatever we do, it is based on an accurate analysis of how these institutions actually function. Right. Because if you can't map it back to the accounting and and all of these particular specific functions of how these institutions work, then yeah. nothing you do based upon that matters. So that that answers the question. Okay. Yeah. I didn't understand. That's exactly right. Yeah. You can't if you can't justify it by reaching out to, and in fact, I saw Randy Ray present a paper one time with a guy named George Selgin, and boy, did I feel sorry for mm. George. Uh, mm. George is an Austrian uh, and a nice man, uh, but nevertheless an Austrian, and they were both talking about the origin of money, and this was shortly after Randy's book, um, Understanding Modern Money. I can't remember the title of it now. I've got it downstairs, but um, after it came out, and he was tracing the origin of money through medieval European history. Um, George Selgin was backward engineering money. Well, let's see. What does money do that's useful? Huh. Okay. So there must have been a problem with that at some point. 
Now, to George, that was a perfectly legitimate way of doing research, and Randy thought that was ridiculous. You have to look at the historical record. Now, why did George disagree? Because George is thinking, yeah, but the people who wrote down that history weren't thinking to themselves, well, we better write this down accurately because one day Randy Ray may try to base a theory on this, right? So, which is also quite right. I mean, you have to be careful how you interpret historical documents. But at the end of the day, sitting there making it up feels like, well, now I can make up whatever I want to come to the policy conclusions that I prefer. So really my conclusion is driving my premises rather than my premises driving my conclusion. Uh, mm -hmm. And Randy is trying to make his conclusions fit the historical narrative. So anyway, mm -hmm. that, that that's part of the same thing. And and poor George, I, I, I literally felt sorry for him because Randy just wouldn't let up. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, okay. Okay. So let, let's change subjects if we may. I want to ask the, I'd like to go to discrimination. I'd like to ask just one question and then yeah. you'll just, you know, you'll answer that. It's a relatively broad question. So, uh, you know, I, I mentioned it before, but but the example that I always give is or that I, that always comes to me is Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby, I grew up on his comedy, um, you know, the dentist chair, the classic skits. And, you know, right. he's incredible. I mean, he, his comedy is is genuinely incredible. Yeah. Um, and then you discovered who he actually has always been and, yeah. you know, some really concerning things. And so now I don't want to listen to his comedy anymore, even though it's incredible. So you can't separate those two things. So that the, you know, his comedy is like sort of the, uh, the analogous analogy of the academic history of economics, but there's also the, oh, the right. community history of, of, of his comedy. And right. so community history, you know, I was inspired by Fred Lee's book. So can you, can you describe, you know, one or two, whatever, incidences of discrimination that you have received being someone that's against mainstream thought. Yeah. And can you put it into a, a broader context of how you personally deal with it? And obviously yeah. your, your contending perspectives book has to fit in somewhere there. Right. And you know, the successes that, that you and the, the and you know, post Keynesians have experienced, even though that resistance, because the resistance is backed by nearly infinite power. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, well, first of all, I, the the room I'm in right now is my studio that I use for my cowboy economist and for when I lecture in the morning to my uh, summer class, uh, which is all online right now. And when I was tidying it up a couple of weeks ago, I put on a Chappelle uh, stand-up routine, and that's exactly what he was talking about, although in a very humorous way, was, oh, my God, Bill Cosby. He said, you know, I grew up admiring him. He was, you know, one of the few you know, black men to, to you know, uh, be accepted and, and says, and now this. Uh, so anyway, you have to, it was fantastic. Uh, and um, uh, Chappelle crosses the line. You're taking a risk when you're watching comedy like that. Uh, but uh, that made me think of that because I have the same problem. I have, I have Bill Cosby loaded onto my, um, onto my phone. And so, you know, when the next song comes up, sometimes there's something from Bill Cosby. I was like, yeah, I'm just going to hit skip. Uh, and mm. so it's a really tough thing. All right. So that, that, that's that. Um, now, as far as personal experiences, um, I have been very lucky in where I am. Uh, if I hadn't got this job here and gotten tenure and then promotion to full professor while the department was still very non-mainstream, my life might have been much more difficult. Um, I uh, and now I am finding that some of our younger colleagues, though, are thinking that these other classes are a waste of time, ones that they have no idea what's actually in them, uh, but nevertheless. And um, I, I'm feeling some pressure, you know, the contending perspectives class that maybe they don't want it to be offered anymore. Uh, and 
anyway, that's a fight we're going to get into here at some point. Uh, and hopefully the fact that I'm a senior faculty member is going to help out with that. And the fact, by the way, I don't know if you've seen this, that there's a, uh, a webpage called Divi IQ, something like that. It's about how to get diversity into economics. Economics is very white male dominated, more so than the natural sciences and engineering. Um, and so it's all about how do we attract women and people of color and people of different you know, backgrounds into economics. First thing they say, you got to have a class that talks about different schools of thought. So um, mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons why I want to you know, fight so hard to keep this class. Other than that, my opportunities have been severely limited. Uh, I can't move somewhere else. Um, you know, even back when I was you know, before I was tenured, I certainly wouldn't have gotten tenure somewhere else with, with a, uh, uh, a CV that was filled with Journal of Post-Keynesian Economics and Journal of Economic Literature which is the Institutionalist Journal. Uh, and there, there's sometimes some subtle feeling you get from other people, uh, but not, not much directly from me. I, as I, I've been very protected. I haven't, I haven't been in the situation where I have been in the position of weakness and had to you know, deal with somebody. But I will tell you this, uh, and that is I was, talking, I was at a conference that Jamie Galbraith had put together down at University of Texas, which is not UT. By the way, I went to UT, which is in Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he, he brings in all these, uh, I guess, policymakers and so forth. And we talk economic policy and it's all MMT and Green New Deal and stuff like this. And we'd been drinking. It was the end of the, of the uh-huh. conference. And I said, what are we going to do about the economics discipline? And he said, oh, it's gone. It's, it's hopeless. There's nothing we can do. Uh, there's nothing we can do for the economics discipline. I said, well, what can we do? He said, well, what we're doing right here. We're not trying to talk to them anymore. Screw them. We're talking to the policymakers. And a new and wonderful thing is we're talking to these uh, groups of progressives on the Internet that, you know, I I said earlier something about this being a a really unique event. As somebody who's been in this for 30 some years, the idea that we're actually getting some respect and that we're not being treated like 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 children uh, almost. Uh, and that because we have, and why? Because our ideas are more powerful. No, we have so many followers now. People like yourself who are putting their limited time and energy into doing things like this and then broadcasting it and having other people think, hey, this is interesting to listen to. Oh my God, this, you don't know what, how wonderful this is to those people who have been struggling in the trenches and for nothing. I, I just wrote a um, review for Stephanie Kelton's book, um, the, the deficit myth uh, for mm-hmm. a journal. And I ended it with this observation. Uh, and that was that back when I was in grad school, I got invited out uh, to go to lunch with some big names in institutionalism and post-Keynesian economics. Uh, Chris Brown, uh, another one of the graduate students, and I went out with him. And we sat there quietly, of course, we were terrified. But it was Alfred Eichner and, and, and Paul Davidson and Terry Neal and Ann Mayhew, who are both big uh, in institutionalism. And so we're all excited, right? And they start talking about, remember back when we thought we could make a difference and we didn't. Hmm. Oh, great. Here I am, off to become an economist, and this is what I'm hearing from my heroes. Um, and as I was writing this book review, uh, my initial thought was going to be, you know, ah, but now we have. And then I thought, wait a minute. They did make a difference. They were the ones that kept the fire alive in other people. They were the ones who, despite, you know, Paul Davidson, who's, you know, the, one of the big names in post-Keynesian economics in the U.S., um, and my recollection is that they weren't letting him teach graduate courses at Rutgers because of what he was teaching. 
So he struggled hmm. under these terrible conditions and yet keep pushing for post-Keynesian economics, you know, the institutionalists keep pushing. So, and, you know, this, you know, Stephanie Kelton came from UMKC where it's full of institutionalists and post-Keynesians. Uh, so, you know, this is a wonderful thing today. I, I don't feel as oppressed as I used to. Uh, so my personal story is not one where I've run into much other than some, you know, sort of subtle snide remarks now and then about us not really knowing how math works. And that's why we do what we do as well. OK, you don't know how the economy works. And that's why you do what you do. Uh, what was your conversation with uh, Galbraith that you were mentioning? Oh, well, that was um, the, the, he's, he has a, a wonderful conference there every uh, two years and a wonderfully depressing conference. Uh, hmm. One time it was about the Eurozone collapsing. I think it was the first one I went to. Uh, the next one may have been climate change. The, the last one was on the Green New Deal, a new deal uh, for the U.S. and Europe. Uh, and um, no, that's where I said to him, you know, how, what are we going to do about the economics discipline? And he said, well, it's dead. There's nothing we can do. Um, and so, well, what can we do? Well, we focus on policymakers and, and with, with the help yeah, of, of, uh, of lay people, we're actually making some progress. Uh, and so, so they were unknowingly influencing what is now MMT. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, it's a good time to be. Uh, I feel bad for my, you know, for my teachers, who many of whom have passed on now, to miss out on this period of history right here, where we've got a chance. I don't want to get too excited because everything is falling apart all over the planet. <laughs> but uh, we've got a chance to maybe, maybe the very fact that it is falling apart is leading so many of these progressives who are looking for solutions, and we're not getting the solutions from the neoclassicals. The neoclassicals, well, we can't afford it. Uh, and, you know, we can't afford not to. So this is a really exciting time to be, I think, a uh, post-Keynesian institutionalist economist uh, because the MMT stuff is really just taken off. I don't know if I answered Great. your question in there anywhere or not. Yeah, no, yeah. no, it was good. It was good. That was good. Um, okay, so let's let's switch gears. Let's let's go to uh, inflation, if I may. Oh yes, yeah. Okay, great. So what I what I'd like to do is I'd like to just give you a few minutes of background of conversation that I had. Yeah. And then just use that as a bouncing off point to get into the broader concepts of inflation, because because I've been reading the macroeconomics textbooks, I've been watching some of your lectures, I've been you know I read your, your 